Well, this morning we come to the end of the book of Acts and the amazing account of the gospel's expansion from a small group of believers in a small province of the Roman Empire to becoming a world religion. The account is not one of fantasy and myth, but of great historical accuracy punctuated by Luke's diligent naming of local magistrates and Roman emperors. The original audience of the book of Acts could talk to the people mentioned and talk to the places mentioned. Uh, The original audience and we as the readers today are assured of the historical accuracy of this account and of the power of God to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and transform the world. And so now this final section of the book of Acts comes as a fitting end to a ministry that still continues today right here and right now. It's placed into our hands. And so before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. God of heaven and God of earth, we come to you now having worshiped in song, we worship in study. I'm glad for the opportunity to have your word opened up to us. And to that end, as always, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and do exactly that, to bear witness to the reading and then to the preaching of your word, that we might know it as your word and respond as you would make us able. And so to that end, we also, as always, pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Beginning at verse 17 of Acts 28, we're going to have two scenes of Paul meeting with Jewish leaders, then sort of a concluding non-conclusion. Listen to God's word. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in part one, the first meeting with the 
Jewish leaders, Paul calls together these leaders, uh, the local leaders of the Jews, just three days after arriving in Rome. And he proactively seeks to seek to set the record straight in three areas. First, that he was not guilty of any offense against Israel. Second, that the Romans had been ready to release him. And third, that he had not brought any kind of a countercharge against the Jewish leadership. Let's briefly consider those three points. First, Paul was not guilty of any offense against Israel. Verse 17, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Now that word that's translated customs is where we get our word ethics. It refers to customs fixed or prescribed by law or tradition. It had been the tradition of the Jews that a person who was not ethnically Jewish must become Jewish by being circumcised and following the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to worship the God of the Jews. But that tradition is not really faithful to all that is revealed in the Old Testament and certainly not in light of the new revelation of Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. It would be like telling people that in order to be a Presbyterian, you must not raise your hands in worship or show any emotional expression whatsoever in order to be part of the frozen chosen. Right? You must also go to at least three committee meetings a month and uh, look down your nose at anyone who's not a Calvinist. Right? That may be the traditional behavior of Presbyterians, but is not biblical faithfulness. And as we come to the holiday season with traditions and sentimentality in those traditions, it is good for us to distinguish between helpful traditions and hindering traditions. So Paul is not guilty of any offense against Israel, especially when we consider what he was charged with was not a redemptive view of circumcision. He was falsely charged with stirring up riots, conspiring politically against Rome and Caesar and trying to desecrate the temple. So Paul is not guilty, and he makes the second point that the Romans had been ready to release him. Verse 18, the Romans examined me, wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. Paul had committed no crime against Israel, and he had also committed no crime against Rome. In fact, the Romans had been ready to release him, if not for the objection of the Jews. And so Paul then makes that third point, that he has not brought any kind of a countercharge against the Jewish leaders. Verse 19, when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. Now, to be sure, Paul certainly had the right to bring a charge, and he certainly had reason to bring charge against his people for falsely accusing him, falsely accusing him and being the ones who actually did stir up riots in Jerusalem and other places, and for their attempts to kill him. The word, by the way, that's translated objected means to speak against, literally anti-speech. So they didn't just object, they had anti-speech against Paul to the point that Paul had to appeal to Caesar because the local officials were playing political games with his life. And so Paul summarizes the whole point by saying in verse 20, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. We've heard Paul say that before, that it is for the hope of Israel. He said that before King Agrippa, before Governor Felix, he said it before the Sanhedrin, the Messiah is the hope of Israel. The Old Testament had continually pointed forward to that promised Messiah. And Paul is saying, the Messiah has now come. His name is Jesus. And so it's because of Jesus, the promised Messiah, the hope of Israel, that I am bound with this chain. 
And to this summary, the Jewish leaders say something rather unexpected in verse 21. We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. None of the brothers who have come from that area has reported or said anything bad about you. We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. It is so unexpected that they have not heard anything that we almost think that they are lying, except that they have no cause for lying. And the sincerity of what they say is shown in the fact that they come back in even greater numbers to hear Paul's views. In God's providence, they are going to be able to hear Paul objectively. They have not heard anything bad about Paul the person, but they have heard that people are talking against this sect of Christianity, the Nazarene sect as it's also been called. And again, that phrase, speaking against, in verse 22, is the same word that was translated objected in verse 19. It's anti-speech. There's been anti-speech against this Nazarene Christian sect. And that word translated sect, as we've seen before, is where we get our word heresy. The word most strictly means choice. So it can simply mean choosing to follow a set of beliefs and practices. But it can go so far as to mean choosing a set of beliefs that is outside the established set of beliefs. And that is generally how we use the word, and rightly so, that heresy are those beliefs outside the bounds of established orthodoxy. But here's a difference between the way we treat heresy and the way others do. The terror attack on the Egyptian mosque on Friday is how some ultra-Orthodox Muslims deal with what they call the heresy of Sufism. In the Reformation, we saw how Roman Catholicism and the medieval church dealt with what they called the heresy of Protestantism. Today, we would say there is still heresy and false teaching in the Christian church. Pretty much anybody who's a TV preacher, especially the prosperity preachers. But we do not respond to such heretical preaching with death threats or actual acts of terrorism. The Apostle Paul faced threats and actual attempts to take his life. And so here, the response of the Jewish leaders is the right response. We want to hear what your views are. And so they set up a second meeting, part two of Paul and the Jewish leaders. Verse 23 tells us that they came in even larger numbers, but not a mob as we've seen in other places. They came to listen, and listen they did. From morning till evening, Paul explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. It'd be great to have that teaching recorded, wouldn't it? A Christ-centered exposition of the Old Testament. How similar it must have been to the exposition that Jesus did on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection in Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then Jesus later with the disciples when he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. We would love to have recordings of this teaching, Christ-centered exposition of the Old Testament. And you know what? We do. That's what the Gospels are. Paul's letters, the pastoral letters, the New Testament gives us Christ-centered exposition of the Old Testament. So that we can say the Old Testament is the gospel concealed, the New Testament is the gospel revealed. And I can also tell you that next year, in 2018, the next sermon series will be a Christ-centered exposition of the book of Numbers. We have the great advantage today of having the whole Bible 
And so we can go into the wilderness with the ancient church of Israel and see a Christ-centered view of ancient Israel and understand how relevant it is to our lives today as we see it through Christ. Now, as Paul taught, it would not have been a monologue lecture, but the kind of dialogue, the give-and-take debate that we've seen him do with others in the past. In verse 25, he summarizes the response uh, that some were convinced by what he said, others would not believe. And that needs to be for us a great affirmation for our own evangelistic efforts. The Apostle Paul ministering to a room full of people who knew the Bible, some are convinced, but others would not believe. And so we see that the success of our evangelism is not based on us or how perfectly we present the gospel. Some listen to the Apostle Paul and would not believe, just as some listen to Jesus and would not believe. We are discouraged when people refuse to believe, sometimes criticize ourselves for our presentation of the gospel. And we are greatly encouraged when people do believe and sometimes overly credit ourselves with our presentation of the gospel. It turns out the success of our evangelism is not about us, but about the sovereignty of God. And to that, we can be thankful. Some will be persuaded, but others will not believe. Literally, they will have no faith. If you have faith, you were persuaded. We all have to be convinced because believing in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Christ alone for our salvation, is not a natural belief. It is supernatural, and it is a work of the Lord to make it happen. Now, verse 25 tells us they disagreed among themselves, and that phrase comes from the word where we get our word symphony. So it literally says that there was not symphony. Rather than the beautiful, harmonious sounds of a symphony of agreement, there was the inharmonious noise of disagreement. And as Paul heard this disappointing sound of dis-symphony, he applied to them the quote from Isaiah 6. You will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. This people's heart has been calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. We heard those words earlier in the service in its full context of Isaiah 6. And as Isaiah was brought into the presence of God, his sin atoned for, and then commissioned to speak this difficult message to his own people. And so there is no self-righteousness in Isaiah. There is no self-righteousness in Paul as they speak these words to their own people. In fact, in the presence of God, Isaiah had said, woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, speaking among a people of unclean lips. In the presence of God on the road to Damascus, Paul had fallen to the ground, blinded, and would later write to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It pains us deeply to have people we love reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in humility, we remember that the only reason we have responded to the gospel is because God has made it so. Verse 27 then says, for this people's heart has become calloused. That word calloused literally means to make thick, such that it becomes dull, insensitive, impervious, which really is the natural state 
of all our hearts until the Holy Spirit breaks through. And so we ought to be concerned with ourselves wherever we experience any kind of hardness, cynicism, obstinacy, bitterness, or coldness and hostility, that we might seek the Lord lest our hearts become thick, calloused, dull, and miss out on the Lord's healing. Would you like to be healed, restored, cured? Turn to God. Do not be hardened, but let the Lord soften your heart. That work of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Christ, by the work of the Father, the triune God of the universe is for you. Seek for the Lord to conquer you, to overcome you, to turn you, to soften you, and then healing follows. So often we want the healing to come first and then maybe we'll believe. We think about the 10 lepers who were healed and only one came back to Jesus to say thanks. And so we ought to say, God, give me you. Make me want more and more of you. Not, not what you can give me, but more of you. Well, this prophecy of Isaiah applied to that present unbelieving company was certainly offensive. But what was even more offense was the words of verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Paul essentially says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation has been brought to you Jews and some of you have believed, but on the whole, you have rejected the Messiah. And so this gospel is not just for you, it is for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. So the gospel has now gone out to the Gentiles and they will listen and respond. You Jews who are without faith cannot hear and turn and be healed, but the Gentiles, they will hear and they will turn and receive the salvation of God. And that sentiment was untenable to unbelieving Jews. It is, as we've seen so many times in the book of Acts, a racial prejudice stemming from false religious belief. It is a racism that says only Israel can be saved. The Gentiles are barbarians. And so racism in any form is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel that will be received by God's elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we must repent of any bigotry in our heart that suggests the gospel isn't for those people, whoever those people is in our heart and mind. And if you look closely in your Bible, you'll see that for most of us, verse 29 is missing. In most Bibles, it is a footnote because it does not exist in the majority of the best ancient manuscripts. And verse 29 really simply reiterates what was in verse 25, and so it is most likely an added repetition, not in the original document written by Luke. It says, what was previously said in verse 25, that at Paul's pronouncement the gospel was going to the Gentiles, the unbelieving Jews left arguing vigorously among themselves. So ends the two meetings with the Jewish leaders. And it brings us to the concluding verses. And we might expect the conclusion of the book of Acts to be, well, a conclusion. <laughs> but it really isn't. What happens to Paul? Does he testify before Caesar? Does he live? Is he martyred? What happens to Paul? Well, the conclusion reminds us that the book of Acts isn't about Paul. 
It's about God and the ministry of the gospel. Luke's non-conclusion in this book of Acts calls attention to the successful ministry, just as Jesus had declared, but also calls attention to the ongoing reality of gospel ministry still today. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom reign with his ministry and the ministry in that apostolic age. The inauguration period of Christ's kingdom concluded in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the conclusion of the apostolic ministry. And that began the continuation period of Christ's kingdom, which is the period that we are still in today. We await the final consummation of Christ's kingdom when he returns, but there is still gospel ministry to be carried out today. And so verse 30 says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And not all who came to see him were friendly. And then verse 31, Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the phrase kingdom of God and gospel are often used interchangeably in the Bible. Kingdom of God is the fullness of the gospel, more than just salvation, but never less than salvation. It is the gospel that goes into every aspect of life and existence. Today, we are still called to go into the world and preach the full kingdom of God and teach about Jesus Christ. At times, there will be great hindrance to that. Other times, the way will be clear. But we can always teach with boldness as those who are boldly thankful. The word that's translated boldly means this, an attitude of openness that stems from freedom and lack of fear. Let me say that again. An attitude of openness that stems from freedom and lack of fear. And so it's possible to be bold and outspoken without being a jerk. To be confident but not arrogant. We are invited to come to the throne of grace with confidence, but it's a confidence that is certainly marked by humility. We come in freedom and in reverent fear, but not afraid. Philippians 4 likewise tells us to bring everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And so we are boldly thankful as we bring prayers and petitions. And there is a joyful sense of freedom as we come with humble thanks for the salvation that is given us as we bring our afflictions to the Lord. We are to be joyful, thankful, speaking about Jesus and the kingdom of God, not mean, arrogant, rude, and self-righteous. Let's think about that as we sat around the Thanksgiving table loaded with goodness, where we are boldly thankful, scooping up mounds of food and then second and third helpings, right? And we're boldly thankful as we pass out on the couch afterwards, uh, digesting all that good food. So we are also boldly thankful for the gospel in its fullness, the redemption and restoration of all things that were ruined by the fall, and the role that we get to play in the ministry of this gospel to every aspect of life and existence. And so rather than complaining about the problems in the world, we get to minister gospel solutions. And we cannot do it alone, nor are we supposed to. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And we do it together in the unity of the Holy Spirit, working in and through true believers ministering the true gospel together. But the question is still out there for us of 
what did happen to Paul? <laughs> Whatever happened to Paul? Well, while in Rome, he did write what is known as the four prison epistles, four letters while imprisoned in Rome, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And various histories say that Paul was released from Rome and then traveled to Spain and traveled to Crete. And we think that Titus 1.5 is a reference to that traveling to Crete when Paul writes to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then after his ministry in Spain and Crete, he was imprisoned a second time in Rome where he was beheaded under Emperor Nero's tyrannical reign, possibly in 67 AD. The ancient historian Eusebius writes this. After defending himself, the apostle was again set on the ministry of preaching, coming a second time to the same city of Rome. Paul suffered martyrdom under Nero. During his imprisonment, he wrote the second epistle to Timothy. And in that second epistle, Paul wrote, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. But again, what happened to Paul is not the point of the book of Acts. What happened to the gospel is the point of the book of Acts. Jesus himself gave us the outline for the book of Acts at the very beginning when he said to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that wasn't a suggestion or even a command. It was a statement of fact. You will be my witnesses. It also wasn't a statement to just one person. It was a statement to the disciples. It was a statement to the church. You all together will be my witnesses. Some are going to be witnesses right here in Jerusalem. Some are going to go out and be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And some are going to go out and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts begins with that witnessing that took place in Jerusalem, focusing especially on Peter and then on Stephen. And then following the martyrdom of Stephen, there is the scattering. And so the witness goes out into Judea and Samaria. We first follow Philip and then go back to Peter. And then beginning at verse, or at chapter 13, the book of Acts focuses on Paul and the gospel ministry as it goes out to the ends of the earth, that is, going throughout the Roman Empire and ultimately by its providence going to Rome itself. You will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it was so. Certainly not in any way that was expected or in the way that was desired. It came with suffering, persecution, and martyrdom. But then again, the word martyr is the translation of the word witness. To be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be a martyr. Suffering, persecution, and for some, death. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of suffering. Christ himself suffered. And there is a suffering as we minister the gospel. It's a gospel of grace, giving what is undeserved. It's a gospel of mercy, responding to evil with good. It's a gospel of forgiveness, forgiving those who have sinned against us. It's a gospel of suffering, not retribution. A ministry of unusual kindness, doing what is expected, going above it and beyond. Giving more than what's asked, but giving what is truly needed. And giving sacrificially and giving in community. Us working together. At times agreeing and at times disagreeing in order to come to a point of true agreement. 
We remember that the church gathered together in that first general assembly, the first council in Jerusalem of Acts 15, and the debate that they had to come together to true agreement on the necessity of circumcision. Paul and Peter debated each other, and they came to agreement as they looked beyond their own self-interest to the truth of God's revealed word. And so the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, were witnesses in their own communities, but also sent missionaries out into the world. And so the question we ask is, are we supposed to do local mission, regional mission, or international mission? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) All are vital. And in fact, they all promote each other. We all have a primary calling. And our primary vocation, our current work, and our current mission field, some of us are students at various schools. Being a student is your vocational calling, and your school is your mission field. Some of us are self-employed or employed by various businesses. Our occupation is our vocational calling, and our workplace and the people that we serve with and the people that we serve are our mission field. And all who have this localized vocational calling are also called to be witnesses locally as part of the local church, reaching, equipping, and sending together. So that some are then called to be sent out of the local area, outside of Butler, outside of Pennsylvania, even outside of the United States. But we all minister the gospel together in fulfillment of our various callings from the Lord. And so our witness to the ends of the earth is filled with joyful thanks for the good news of the gospel. We share Jesus not from a negative, oh, you all are so bad, we need to fix you, but from the positive salvation, redemption, restoration is available through Jesus Christ. And so in all circumstances, may we be boldly thankful for the salvation that is ours by the grace of God and be boldly thankful for the good news that we get to minister throughout the ends of the earth. And may the truth set us free to do just that. Amen.